Amen. Go and have a seat, church. Yeah, praise God. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing it is to be together with God's people today. Uh, it is uh, Jersey Sunday here, and so the, the oracle, the greatest prognosticator in the history uh, of, of mortal uh, man, uh, also known as my, me, uh, is going to make his uh, world-famous uh, Super Bowl prediction. Um, and this was a thing that we started doing uh, back at the very beginning of NBC, actually. And when, uh, I guess I could say, I'd like to take credit for the fact that it was knowledge, but it wasn't. I got extremely lucky for about a 10-year period. Uh, I only missed the winner once, and it was the one, the, 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 the Seahawks, where uh, he threw the interception in the end zone. Uh, instead of running the ball, had Marshawn Lynch been given the ball and run to the end zone, I would have not only picked the winner, but the points on the money. I'm just saying. I went on a run. It was luck. But as a result, uh, this became kind of a thing that we do just for fun. So if you're new to our church, uh, you can look forward to it today. Okay, you can take this to the bank, man. All right? I'm telling you, there is no greater prediction out there. Okay, Vegas, whatever. All right, they're probably watching our service right now, actually, to see what I'm going to say. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pick Eagles by six. There you go. Hey, it's not a, hey man, it's about data. It ain't about feelings, man. Facts don't care about feelings, all right? So there you go. Now it's Jersey Day, and I also have a hard time getting on board with that because I'm a preacher, and, and I don't want to ever send the message that, uh, that I'm not taking what I'm doing up here very seriously, okay? So, so it's hard to get me on board for a day like this. Uh, but today I go, you know what? I'm doing Revelation, and I've got a jersey with the number seven on it. I said, I think I can do this, because today we're starting, uh, and we'll be in Revelation 2 today, by the way, a little, uh, a little journey, picture it like being on a cruise ship uh, with seven ports, all right? So, so if you think that reading your Bible and going through serious exegetical work might, might not be as fun as you think, picture it like a cruise trip, all right? You're getting on, and you're gonna, we're going to stop at seven different ports. Today, we're only doing four, all right? So this will be like a full two-week cruise for us, all right, as we go through this uh, journey of what Jesus says to the seven churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Now, you'll notice we have some set pieces. This isn't like normally how we do things. Uh, the Ritz Theater Company is in here later today. That's our homegrown theater company right here uh, at the Grand, and so they're doing all shook up. Two more shows today at three and six. Uh, if you don't like football or whatever, or let's say you do and you just you want to come support everything, I hope you'll come out here. It's awesome. I was here last night. Incredible. But yeah, normally if you're new to the church, we don't have jukeboxes and stuff and motorcycles on the stage. We're not that cool. Uh, but uh, it, we're, so, so, so there's that, all right? So here we go. Off and running. Uh, Revelation, as we talked about last week, is a recounting of a vision that God gives to John. So what you're reading is what he saw, not necessarily his interpretation of everything that he sees. It is a recounting of a vision that God gave to John while he's in exile in the land of Patmos. He was sent there by, we think, the emperor Domitian. This is being writ written in the uh, mid-90s AD. And so he's out there, and God gives this vision to him, and he recounts it and distributes his letters, as far as we know, out to the churches. The symbolism that you see in Revelation, for which it's best known, uh, we use a number of different illustrations, but to oversimplify it, go back and listen to last Sundays, we talked about it a lot more, why all this imagery is there and, and why the symbolism is used. Uh, it would be a little, little bit, since it's Jersey Sunday, I'll use this one. Uh, if we were to say, hey, um, Tom Brady is the goat, all right, we're not saying he's a goat. We're saying he's the greatest of all time. Now, an American would go, oh, the goat, yeah, sure, we know what that means. Uh, just like 
you know, we would know some of these other ones that we did. We had the join or die uh, logo up here. Uh, an American would know what that looked like other than just being a, a snake chopped into different pieces, et cetera, et cetera. So the symbolism that might be a little bit foreign to us is not as foreign uh, to them. So when we look at our own symbols and everything like that, it would be fairly easy for us to get it just like they would understand a great deal of what they see. So we are going to pick up where we left off last week. John sees Jesus in his vision, and as another tip off that the symbols have meaning to them, they're not just kind of random uh, things that are, that are out there, but that John is supposed to understand it. We're going to go back to Revelation chapter 1, read verses 17 to 20 again. So John sees Jesus. Here's what he sees. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right there for the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so he sees this picture, and Jesus has the seven stars in his hand. He's got the, 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 uh, the, the, the lampstands there. The lampstands are the churches. The stars are the angels. And it's a way of saying seven being the number of wholeness or completion. Jesus has it all in his hand. All the churches, all the angels. Seven is a, a very, very important number in the Bible. Anytime you see seven, generally, that is the illusion. All, whole, fullness. It's all in his hands. So Revelation, hence the name, is written to reveal, not to conceal. He defines, Jesus does, what he means here. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. So Jesus has both the churches and the angels in his hand, all being symbolized by the number seven. So the idea that Jesus has all churches and everything pertaining to the churches in his hands is something that's good for any church to remember, that regardless of what it is that we think we're doing here, regardless of whether or not we think we're in charge, we're ultimately really not. And that becomes a bar- I mean, just abundantly clear here in the letters to the seven churches, where Jesus basically says, listen... Um, here's some good stuff, here's some bad stuff. And, and if you'll do this, here's what I'll do. And if you don't, here's what I'm going to do. And usually, the here's what I'm going to do involves ending them. Meaning, the lampstand, that is the church, I'm going to take it. Poof, you're gone. Now, for a lot of people, it's kind of scary, the idea that Jesus is out there and he's watching us. I think it's wonderful news because I trust that God is good and it holds churches accountable for doing the kinds of things that Jesus wants them to be doing. He brings churches into being and he takes them out. He is introduced, Jesus is, before every letter to each church. And he's introduced in awe-inspiring terms because he's the hero of the story. He's the one that everything in Revelation points to. The supremacy of Jesus, the awesomeness of Jesus and so now we get to the specific condemnation, or it is condemnation actually in some cases, the commendations and rebuke given to these seven churches. We're going to look at four this week and three next week. So before we look at each one individually, however, uh, it's important to note that all the believers who have received this document end up reading all of them. 
So it's not like if you're the church at uh, Sardis or Philadelphia or whatever, you only get yours. You're, you're opening everybody else's mail too, which I think is kind of creepy and weird and kind of kind of fun at the same time. But it's a sure indication that the individual Christian communities didn't really see themselves as individuals in isolated terms the way we do here in America today. They saw themselves as part of a larger reality. Now, the letter, uh, the, the form of each letter reads a little bit like an employment review. We just got done, end of the year, maybe you had a, a job review. Your boss calls you in, you sit down. Oh, hey, Larry or Teresa, um, you know what? Hey, it's been another year. Thanks for being with the company here. Well, let's talk through. And so maybe there's an evaluation form that they've got, and they, they, they write down some things to commend you on. You know, hey, uh, Teresa, you've, uh, you've done a great job. You hit all your deadlines. You're, you're super dependable. You show up on time. You're, you're, uh, I can trust you with, with almost everything. But, but you struggle a little bit to work properly with your coworkers. And so this year we need to work on you finding a way to work better in the sandbox with other people, okay? Okay, boss, you know, and off, off you go to another year, right? These letters read a little bit like that. The, the difference is your boss might be nudging you in a particular direction, but their affirmation doesn't mean it feels good in the moment, but it doesn't really change your life, right? It doesn't. He said, I show up for work on time. I'll never be the same. Right? I mean, it doesn't happen that way. And you don't go, neither does their criticism necessarily ruin your life. You know? Oh, he said, he said, I don't play well in the sandbox with others. I'm terrible with relationships. I mean, I guess a person could go there. But usually, you just kind of take it in stride, okay? These letters are not just from an earthly boss, These are from the one, and you can tell by how Jesus is described as they open each letter. This is from somebody way above boss level, the one who holds it all in his hands, the Lord of the universe. So there isn't a point in time when I sit there and I have the freedom to just kind of brush off what he says. And when he gives commendation, we should enjoy that and, 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 and feast on it. And when there's correction offered, we need to take that into account and to do it, to make the changes as quickly as humanly possible. Only the church at Philadelphia of the seven escapes some sort of rebuke or critique. The seven letters to the churches in chapters two and three are read like a review. In each letter, Jesus points out some good stuff going on and uh, in all occasions except two offers challenge and even warning for them to change some things. Now, why did he pick these seven? There are other churches out there. Uh, You don't see Jerusalem mentioned here. You don't see Antioch here. You don't see some of the other ones that maybe you've heard. Why does he pick these particular seven? Well, at the time that Revelation's written, by the time you get to the mid-90s, Christianity has really become an urban phenomenon. The vision comes to Christians everywhere, but it's addressed particularly to those in the city. The issue throughout Revelation is whether Christians are going to orient themselves toward Babylon. Last week we talked about Rome being Babylon. Or the new Jerusalem, the city of God. There is no Babarusalem. You pick a side in Revelation. There's no, you know, I'm going to spend my, you know, I'm going to be a snowbird in Babylon and go there in the winter, orient my life that way. And then when Easter and Christmas come around, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try and live in the city of God. Revelation doesn't allow for that at all. You're in or you're out. 
You're with Babylon or you're with Jerusalem. But you don't get to pick. Uh, to, to kind of like swing between them. Like wear one jersey one day and I'll, I'll wear Babylon tomorrow. Each of these churches are in sizable cities. The first three churches had temples dedicated to emperor worship. So he says things like, you are where Satan's throne is. All seven of these churches had courts in which Christians could be and were tried and were persecuted for being Christians. And yet the number of churches, seven, if you will, is designed to reflect a sense of wholeness and completion. So maybe we can think of it this way. Uh, if, let's say you're, you're getting older and you're turning 55, you know. That's coming for me pretty fast, actually. Um, it's, your, it's your birthday. Now, you're old enough at a certain point that you kind of outgrow the ability to put that many individual candles on the cake. You know, uh, it's expensive. You get to a point, it's like, man, it's, a lot. it's expensive to buy all those candles now, all of a sudden. And if you do, you need a really large cake at that point. The cake keeps getting bigger year after year. So what you do is you buy something saying 55, you two, two fives, and you put it on the cake. And the idea is that represents 55 candles, right? Think of it that way when you read seven here. It is to these seven, but the letters to these seven are to everybody. They represent the whole at the same time. So Revelation is directed to seven churches, but it's also to all churches simultaneously. And again, the number seven is very special in the Bible, signifying all, whole, completeness. So when Jesus is identified as the one among the seven lampstands with the seven stars in his right hand, he's being identified as the one who is among all the churches and all the angels are at his disposal. Now we're going to mention each church, focus on four today, three next week. Off we go. First port we land in on our luxurious cruise through the churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus. We know this one from our Bibles. If we've been in the faith a while, there's a book called Ephesians. Uh, we know several things about Ephesus. It was the largest city that housed a church in this group. Uh, and John begins by commending them for their hard work. They're grinders. They're grinding it out. And their unwillingness to tolerate evil. Okay, now listen to that real quick. They're not willing to tolerate evil. They care about holiness. So when somebody's doing evil in their midst or whatever, they don't just go, oh, shucks, you know. You know we need to just kind of, you know, live and let live and da-da-da. No, no, no. They, they correct it, and, and they're praised for it here uh, in the text. But in Revelation 2, 4 to 5, here's what Jesus says. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's he saying? What's this thing about lost love? And Well, there's some debate about that. Um, some people think it's a specific situation he's referring to. Uh, it's, it's not explicit. I think in some way, shape, or form because he tells them, basically, stop doing what you're doing and then fix this first love thing and then go back and do, you know, hit play again on the works. It seems to be something like the passion that you had when you first became Christians. Uh, there was a time Emily and I, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, we were at a, at a P.F. Chang's having a great dinner out. And it was one of those date nights where it's like, you, you guys know, you, you go out on a date night, some of them flop, and you go out on a date night with your spouse another time, and it's like everything's just going right from the minute you get in the car. Everything's going right. You're getting along, 
You haven't had the lame fights about whatever. Nobody's dumping the, 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 the bad parts of their day on the other person or whatever. You're just kind of like flirting and having a great time. We're at this P.F. Chang's. We're sitting there. We're having one of those nights. Like, like we're, we're, we're having a great night. And we're sitting there, and the waitress asks us, what's the special occasion? And they're like, oh, there's not one. We're just on a date night or whatever. I said, yeah, we've been, we've been uh, married, you know, I think at the time, maybe 17 years, 18 years at the time. And she's like, oh, really? She goes, well, you guys look like a new couple. Hey, now, there have been other nights where it ain't been that way, right? How long have you guys been married? 17 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of go, uh, you're kind of like, okay, well, one has the love you had at first, right? But as you grind out, parenting your kids, trying to make enough money where the ends meet, it starts to drain out. And it can be that way as a Christian. I mean, hands that are dirty for the kingdom are no substitute for an empty heart. God doesn't just want our works. He wants our works, but he wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our passion. He wants us to care. He wants us to be on fire for the kingdom of God. That then gives birth to the works that we, we do. And in Ephesus, it seems like they've kind of burnt out a little bit. You know, it's like a candle at the very end, a votive candle that's been on all night long. And he's getting ready to just kind of fizzle out. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Y'all, you're missing it. Okay? Stop grinding right now. Okay? Fix this. I see this sometimes with new Christians and old Christians. I, will, I, I have very rarely ever baptized, I probably baptized a thousand people, maybe more. I don't think I've ever made it out without whoever comes out of the water hugging me. Now, let's pick a uh, kind of a rainy Sunday in November at church. I would, you know, come in, come out, preach a sermon, do whatever, right? And the people are kind of weary at the time. Now, in one way, the weary have been in the faith a long time. They've been serving the Lord a long time. They've been doing great things a long time. But, on the other hand, the person who's just right out of the water is just full of passion. Now, they haven't done a thing. <laughs> they haven't done anything for God. The hope is that fire, the same fire you had at first, you take that with you and that drives your works. And at the point that you realize, hey, all I'm doing is working. But I haven't, I haven't had any passion for God in a long time, then that's something to pay attention to. Now, in this case, he basically, he didn't tell them to stop doing their works, but he basically says, you fix this and then keep doing your works. Sometimes, you know, new churches versus older churches do the same thing, you know. Brand new churches, everybody's just excited to be there and be together and everything like that. You go to a church that's been around 120 years, you know. It's like, well, we've been here. We're still going to be here. Everybody's just kind of here. And they can kind of lose that. It doesn't do us good, sisters and brothers, to have a full schedule for God and an empty heart toward him and one another. 
Works can only take a person so far. And God is honored by our works. I want to be clear about that. But only when those works lead to deeper relationship with him and other people. And when they're driven by relationship to him and to other people. He says to Ephesus, if you repent, you will eat of the tree of life. You'll eat of the tree of life. Thus, what Adam and Eve were forbidden to do because of their failure to obey, God's redeemed people will experience as the restored Eden where they are now allowed to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a, it's a, it's a striking and powerful image. It says, you're gonna, you're, you keep going, you guys are going to be there, and you're going to eat of the tree of life. Second church, Smyrna. Not a flare, uh, not a lot of flair here uh, in what he writes to the church at Smyrna, but the church at Smyrna, if you keep following their path out, they really become a, an important church in early Christianity. They're commended on the service for enduring persecution, and they're told to persevere. In the church, when this letter was written, I think this is kind of cool. So you figure this is mid-90s. Uh, this letter is being read out loud in all likelihood. In the crowd is a young man by the name of Polycarp, who is eventually appointed by John, the apostle, to be the bishop of the church in Smyrna. About 60 years after this, at the age of 86, Polycarp is brought before the emperor Marcus Aurelius at Smyrna, and he's told to worship the emperor with the phrase, Caesar is Lord, and to offer a sacrifice to Marcus Aurelius. He refuses, and he is sentenced to death. So Polycarp is burnt at the stake in Smyrna under Marcus Aurelius in the year 156. The authorities went to his house. He was hiding. And so they grab all of his servants together, and they torture his servants until they give up his location. When he's pulled to the stake, here's the quote from Polycarp about, as he's about to be ended. He says, 80 and six years have I served Christ, nor has he done, ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. That's what he says. So we need to brace ourselves as well, and stand firm. A second century chronicler of this martyrdom said, it was not as the burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. Same writer said that his martyrdom was remembered by everyone. He is spoken of even by the heathen in every place. That's second century AD. So, when it comes down to proverbially taking the mark, we're saying we don't bow a knee to the emperors of our age. And even to the point that if called upon to lay our lives down, we will do so. Polycarp embraced the promise of his friend John, who said in Revelation 10 and 11, he said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So such witness, even unto death, makes me embrace the promise of God that even if I die for the sake of his name, I will receive the crown of life. 
that the word of God through Paul is true. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Stop three, Pergamum. This is a pretty depressing place. It's one if we were a cruise ship, you'd want to you'd kind of walk off board, take a look around, get back on board, spend the day by the pool. A uh, pretty depressing kind of letter. They dwell where Satan's throne is. That doesn't sound good, whatever it means. It likely means emperor worship. Somebody has been killed for the faith. That's noted. Yet idolatry and sexual immorality is being taught as okay by some. Probably as a way of working with the system. For instance, Rome would try to make things work with the Jews. They would, for instance, say, okay, look, you don't need to offer sacrifices to the emperor, but you have to offer them on behalf of the emperor. That was their way of trying to make peace. And sometimes what would happen is the church would try to accommodate culture in order to take the heat off. Okay, if you'll stop imprisoning us, you'll stop killing us, you'll stop beating us, you'll stop arresting us, uh, you know what, we're going we're gonna, to, we're gonna, well, you know, we'll turn the dial down 25% on, on what we what we think ought to happen. We won't preach against this stuff that we see out in public. Well, so eventually there's a persecution and the Christians and Jews both draw a hard line. So the lesson from Pergamum really becomes that the church needs to always be on the lookout for immorality in its own midst. That's what's called on from the church at Pergamum. One of the dominant themes of the letter to the seven churches is the issue of tolerating evil and doctrinal uh, falsehood. Now, we can go too far, we can, in making concessions to our culture. We need to decide how often and what if, uh, what kinds of concessions ought to be made. There are times where that might be appropriate. You can even see, uh, you know, Jesus being called a friend of sinners and, and, and hanging out with people who are far from God. On the other hand, you get letters like this and you get the sense there is a point where somebody has to say, no, that's, that's, that's just wrong. We're not going to do that. No, you have to. You have to. You have to. You have to applaud it. You have to affirm it. And if you don't, well, you're going to go to jail or, you're gonna, or worse or you're going to be, you know, castigated or marginalized or whatever. What, what the letter to Pergamum says is, yeah, you will. But you want to stay faithful to what God has called you to do not buckle under the pressure of the society and the culture around you. Revelation 2.16 says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Last stop, Thyatira. The problem of tolerating immorality, there's, there's a little bit of an echo of, uh, of Pergamum in here. <coughs> Excuse me. I, was, I tried to help and it just didn't work. Sorry about that. Uh, those of you I woke up, I'm very sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the problem of tolerating immorality kind of continues at Thyatira. Here's what the text says uh, of Thyatira. I gave her time to repent. This is uh, Revelation 2, 21 to 23. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. That I am he who searches 
the mind, and the heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So it's important to notice the importance here of works. God cares what we do. God cares what we don't do. God cares about what we will put up with. And he cares about sexual immorality. He does. Big time. In fact, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, a banner issue in two of the four churches that we're looking at today. And so there are people who are not just tolerating it, they're actually teaching that it's okay. God cares about our purity and our holiness. Um, the words of the psalmist come to mind. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart who do not lift their souls up to an idol. That, that, that God has a profound interest in what we do with our bodies. I don't care what anybody else says. You cannot read the Bible and think God doesn't care what we do with our bodies. Okay, You just can't. It would take an astonishing act of biblical hopscotch to, to get there. So the question then becomes, all right, if, if, if God cares and he knows the mind and the heart, he sees these things, um, then if I claim that I love Jesus, then I have to take these things seriously. Not just because I'm afraid of what he'll do, even though the descriptions of what he says he might do are kind of terrifying at times if a, if a church doesn't repent. But I'm going to suggest to you that the reason to pay attention to it is the way that he's introduced. So in each of these kind of uh, ports of entry, if you will, these letters to the churches, Jesus is introduced in a different way. And each of them are completely awe-inspiring. Here they are. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's got all the angels, and he's walking among all the churches. It's Revelation 2.1. Revelation 2.8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.12. How about this one? The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's the one. He's the one who knows our works. And that's comforting to me because it means that when I'm trying to pour myself out as a Christian for him, he sees it. He, he knows our works. He knows all the ways that we try to live faithfully to him. He knows the sacrifices we make when we serve and when we give and when we, we love our enemies and we do all these different things. He sees it and it's also totally terrifying because he sees everything else too. Who sees it? The one, the, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first and the last who died and came to life. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's the one that sees both. And loves us anyway. 
think sometimes it's easy for me to think or any of us to think that he doesn't, if I don't see it right now, then he doesn't see it. But that's the thing we have to take away from Revelation is he's saying, he's going out of his way to say, no, I'm walking out among everybody and everything and I see the heart and I see the mind and I see the works in every church, in every Christian, in every church, I see it all. I know why you make the decisions you make and why you decide to not do the things that you should. I know it all. And yet he doesn't do this, right? He doesn't go, well, you know what, you guys had such potential, but you messed up again. You messed up again, so I guess it's finally time. I'm throwing in the towel on you. No, he stays engaged and continuing to call people to repentance and offering them something better than the sin that they're chomping on at the moment. He knows, and yet he loves. He knows, and he calls us to repentance. Think about this. What if our church has an angel? And if there was a message for us, what would it say? Now, here's a question for us as we have that question posed to us. When I posed that question, how did you feel? Did you feel scared or exhilarated? Because the answer to that question, the way you felt probably, tells you a lot about how you see God and how you see yourself right now. If we want to go with the seven analogy and talk about the fullness and the completeness and the wholeness of things, then let's think about this. What might, if, 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 if there's an angel that has a letter to drop off in your personal mailbox, what might that letter say? My guess is, you probably know a lot of what it would say. I doubt there's a lot that you would go, wow, I had no idea, wow. You know, most of us are aware So then the question becomes, will those who have ears to hear this morning, hear? Because what Jesus does here is he's trying to correct them, not not just condemn them. He's saying, no, listen, you guys are under intense persecution here. Times are getting tough for you. The culture around you is leveraging you and squeezing you and pushing you and hurting you and doing all of this on my account. And some of you are being bold. And, I mean, you're, you're doing things for, uh, for the kingdom that are unusual and awesome and bravo, bravo. But others of you are betraying your Savior. Others of you are caught up in all sorts of stuff, sexual immorality. You're caving to the culture around you. You're letting them bully you into defining truth. You're, you're succumbing to their ideological colonialism. Don't do it, he's saying. Be bold. Stand firm. Be the church. Love Jesus. And you will eat from the, tree, the fruit of the tree of life. May God bless the hearing of his word. We're going to gather around the Lord's table now. And um, as we do, I'm going to go back and read the descriptions of Jesus. We do this every week here at New Vintage. We take communion and 
with bread and cup now, we want to acknowledge our Lord and Savior who has called us, the one in whose hand is all, all the stars, all the lampstands. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. He who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So as we take bread and cup now, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize you know. You know. And that brings us comfort. You know our struggles. You know our fight against temptation. You know our fight to help reach people in your name. You know the sacrifices that we make. You know the passion that we have. And yet, Father, you know our sin too. You know what occupies our minds and our thoughts. You know our apathy. You know where we're unconcerned, where we should be concerned. You know, you know. And so, Father, today, as we take communion, we we thank you for Jesus the one who knows, and we say, search us. We invite you to search us. Show us if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. We remember our Savior and his sacrifice that makes us holy in your sight. And we say we will not betray that by being weak, by making a decision to capitulate to the culture around us, but instead, Father, we're going to be bold. We want Jesus, the bold one, the one who walked the earth and taught truth and love. We want his spirit to be alive in us, Father, and breathing each moment. So right now, as we remember him with bread and cups, search our hearts, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.